Boo, haunted house. Everything now is spooktacular, and one could even call this month, hear me out now, spooktober. Yet, how might such paranormal or even horror elements like ghosts and spirits and such like actually help awaken our imaginations to the reality of the good and evil worlds around us? This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. I am Stephen, the publisher of Lorehaven, and of late, also the co-author of a book called The Pop Culture Parent, full name E. Stephen Burnett. On this podcast, we explore and find the best of Christian-made fantasy, sci-fi, and paranormal, or paranor novels. And we love to explore the wonderful elements of those stories and apply those to the real world that Christ has called us to serve. And I am Zachary Russell, and one of my dreams as a kid was to be a writer for The Simpsons, the specifically the Treehouse of Horror, whenever they would have uh, unique nicknames at the end. So mine would have been Attack of the Zock, Russell, because I love the uh, 50s horror movies. But this is episode 36 of Fantastical Truth. How do paranormal tales edify the Christian reader? And we're going to be joined by author Mike Duran, who has written the Reagan Moon series. So, Stephen, right right away, I know you're uh, probably not a fan of The uh, Simpsons, but uh, what about things like The X Files or uh, Twilight Zone, Black a Mirror? Single episode of Black Mirror or The X Files. <laughs> I've definitely seen a few of the Twilight Zone, and I'm, I'm a fan of at least some classic horror. I was uh, happy to discover recently that my sister has been enjoying an audiobook of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I was happy enough to discover, yes, for the first time a few years ago. And the parallels between uh, Dracula's wicked sensuality and disordered power are startling, especially when you compare him to some real-world villains. So horror and paranormal stories absolutely have that ability to reflect the real world in ways that are distinct, that not even the cousin genres of fantasy and sci-fi can edify us. There's plenty of overlap, of course, and Mike's stories have lots of those elements mixed in, a little urban fantasy, a little sci-fi, plus just plenty of creatures running around in and out of the physical and spiritual dimensions. Yeah, I've actually not read Mike's newest book, which is called The Third Golem, but on uh, Lorehaven, we have uh, reviewed his uh, second book, uh, Saint Death, uh, which also <laughs> I personally have yet to read. But I think I understand the type of story that Mike is writing, mainly because I'm a fan of the first two Hellboy movies, kind of superhero urban fantasy type genre based on the Mike Manola comic and directed by a uh, director, Guillermo del Toro. Hope I didn't mess up uh, the uh, the uh, Spanish in his first name there. I was surprised to find that I, I like these movies. They star uh, Ron Perlman as a uh, Hellboy, Big Red. Uh, he's uh, literally like a demon type creature that was rescued by a kindly professor and then raised to fight on behalf of humans against the actual bad monsters. He has a right hand of doom, which is like this animated uh, stone uh, hand and uh, has a lot of different uh, mishmash of legends and different mythologies all bundled up in the one story world there's a little fey in there uh, basically everybody's religion is true a lot of uh, light catholic elements mixed in with uh, some new age stuff there's ghosts there's creatures there's probably even uh, some uh, cthulhu type influences in there just a little bit of lovecraft uh, diet lovecraft so i i didn't think i'd like that kind of story but i did and uh, so apparently uh, if i can enjoy that kind of story even though I wasn't raised with it, 
then I imagine lots of other readers and fans can too. Well, there's a author or writer that I follow on Twitter, and he mentioned to his kid the movie Interview with a Vampire, uh, the classic one with, uh, I believe it's Tom Cruise and Val, is it Val Kilmer? Or no, it's Brad, Brad Pitt. I, I never actually saw it, but uh, you know, it's, it's based on a classic book. So he, he mentioned it to his uh, son that's like eight or 10 years old. I, I believe this is uh, Austin Cleon that shared this. I just can't find the uh, the actual tweet right now, but his his son just kind of pictured in his mind what an interview with a vampire must look like, and the whole time the vampire is trying to bite the interviewer or something like that. And so, you know, it's funny to think about how we see these stories at, at different phases in our life, and how you know monsters can just be a silly thing, but of course, you know, monsters are this representation of things that we fear or things that we are. A- apprehensive of and maybe a little interested in uh, because we have this inner sense that maybe there is more to this world than just the physical. Maybe there is uh, m- more that uh, to the, the animal kingdom than just what's in, you know, encyclopedia Britannica. If, if you're as old as me or Wikipedia, if you know, you're a zoomer or whatever, you know, it's interesting, Stephen, how I, I've always had a, a fascination with these kind of stories from as long ago as I can remember. I, I've probably seen every X-Files episode. You know, I mentioned that earlier. I watched a lot of horror movies as a kid I probably shouldn't have seen. I, I think the, the one that stands out the most is Stephen King's It, you know, which they've recently redone and I haven't seen the remake. But the original one that came out, uh, golly, in the early 90s, I think. That that made me pretty afraid to take a shower. It obviously made me terrified of clowns, uh, which why in the world would anyone be a clown anymore after movies like that? So I, I feel for you clown people that are trying to just make kids laugh. But we are we're going to get into all these topics with our guest today, Mike Duran. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about Mike's book, The Reagan Moon Series. Well, Mike's Reagan Moon series is about a a paranormal reporter who is skeptical about this whole thing. And then in book one, he encounters the spiritual realm. It crashes into his real world and upends his understanding of the universe. Like I said, uh, Lorehaven Magazine, uh, from which this podcast comes, has reviewed a book two, at least, A Saint Death. Uh, We actually reviewed that in the very first issue of our magazine, I believe. And this is an excerpt from that interview. Quote, What do you get when you cross a quasi-Catholic folk cult, an interdimensional conspiracy, and a hard-boiled reporter slash Earth Guardian? Why, Mike Duran's Saint Death, of course. This second installment in the Reagan Moon series conjures a menagerie of the grotesque and macabre. When an anonymous tip leads Moon to a shrine used for human sacrifice, he learns demonic forces are threatening Los Angeles. But this time, our loner hero must team with a band of fellow oddballs to stand a chance of averting catastrophe. End quote. And check the show notes for that complete review. We're also posting our fr- from our massive backlog of Lorehaven reviews, only the best of Christian fantasy, sci-fi, and such that we can find at lorehaven.com. Mike also just recently released book three, which is called The Third Golem. We have not yet reviewed that book at Lorehaven, but I can quote from the back cover like so, quote, Reagan Moon is a survivor. He's bested ghosts, lizard people, and death angels, but his greatest foe is waiting in the wings. When an herbalist is ritually murdered in Chinatown, Reagan Moon and the Imperia are drawn into a mysterious plot to reawaken a mythical monster. Seems Balfour Rothbard, chaos magician and technological whiz kid, 
is seeking to resurrect the legendary third golem. End quote. You can read the complete description at Amazon, where Mike's books are available. We'll also include those links in the show notes. We are pleased to have with us Mike Duran, who is a novelist, blogger, and speaker. His short stories, essays, and commentary have appeared in outlets such as Relief Journal, Cemetery Gates Media, The Gospel Coalition, Relevant Online, Bewildering Stories, Rue Morgue, Zombies Magazine, Breakpoint, and other print and digital outlets. He is the author of The Ghost Box, which was selected by Publishers Weekly as one of the best indie novels of 2015 and first in a Paranoir series that continues with Saint Death and now also his newest book, The Third Golem. Mike also wrote the Southern Gothic horror novelette Wicker's Bog, a nonfiction exploration on the intersection between the horror genre and evangelical fiction entitled Christian Horror and other novels and nonfiction. You can learn more about Mike Duran, his writing projects, cultural commentary, philosophical musings, and arcane interests at MikeDuran.com. Or, of course, here he is right now, so he can condense all of that into one podcast conversation. Great to have you with us, Mike. Greetings, Stephen and Zach. How are you guys? Good. Good to hear you, Mike. Fantastical, I'd say. Great. Great to be here with you. So, Mike, how did you first discover biblical faith and fantastical fiction? In that order? Or e- either order. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever. Because I mean, I, some people, it happens all at once, and then others, the order is a bit uh, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. There's not a strict <laughs> progression of cause to effect. I mean, not to, you know, put pressure on you, but, you know, when you were reading Narnia, what, at what point in the book did you pray and receive Christ, you know, <laughs> on which page? I actually didn't <laughs> didn't start with, I didn't know of C.S. Lewis until well after my conversion, but it really Gasp. was, it really was f- uh, fantastical stories that were kind of the beginning, they were the gateway to my faith rather than faith being the gateway to fantastical. So uh, it's such a long story. And this, I actually wrote a memoir about this because I felt it was worth telling. But I was really, uh, you know, I was raised as a Catholic boy, but really fell away from the faith and got into hallucinogenics. And we were, you know, to the extent that we were using occultism and religious rituals, using LSD and psilocybin for spiritual enlightenment, you know, so it was a, a difficult um, a childhood, you know, an adolescence to say the least, but it was kind of through that that I ended up coming in contact with a lot of what I considered spiritual darkness and mm. realizing that that the devil and spiritual powers, that the demonic were very real, but fantastical stories were always a part of my life. I was reading, you know, weird tales at a young age. I was reading comic books, Ray Bradbury, uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, the, you know, Isaac Asimov, all of the kind of the standard early science fiction guys, Arthur Clarke and Clifford Simak and all these guys, you know. And so reading fantastical fiction kind of opened a portal in my imagination for a place other than just a materialistic world. And I I was very much into the natural world. I had like microscopes. I had a telescope as a kid. I was uh, always in awe of the natural world. But reading fantastical stories kind of made a place in my mind 
for something supernatural or something other than the natural. You, you kind of get what I'm saying. And, and, yeah. and, and, uh, and believing in, let they, let's say there were ghosts or that, um, that, you know, traveling to other worlds and, uh, you know, phenomena, spiritual phenomena, uh, multiple dimensions, things like this, whatever it would be in a, um, in a speculative sense, that kind of crafted out this, this wedge in my thinking regarding uh, the possibility of spiritual realities and supernatural realities. And so it was kind of from there. And again, it's a long story, which I've wrote about in, in my memoir that I came, came to faith, but clearly for me, at least fantastical stories paved the way for salvation. And I probably should add that because I was a Catholic boy, I was an altar boy. A lot of the iconography of Catholicism kind of interspersed with my fantastical pursuits. The Catholic Church is very much full of of icons and images, statues. I mean, in oh, the yes. church that I went to Catholic school for uh, nine years, and so we were required to go to church every morning, <laughs> you know, go to mass huh. every morning before school, and. Then I was an altar boy, so many times I'd do things like the Stations of the Cross. I'd be up there with the priest, uh, light the candles, et cetera, et cetera, and have the statue of Jesus, a bloody Jesus, you know, a thorned head, bloody Jesus staring down at me, <laughs> you know, in the Stations of the Cross and the statuary of Mary stomping on the serpent. All of these things were they took on mystical proportions to someone who was into the fantastical. And so I have to say that the Catholic iconography kind of wheedled into my imagination as well. So you can see there was kind of a potentially toxic brew kind of going on inside my, my thinking. Did you watch The Exorcist when that came out? I didn't see it until later. I'm not sure when that came out. Was it 73 or something? Somewhere around there. But Before I, didn't I was see, born. <laughs> I didn't see it right away. We were, you know, as a kid, I was involved. We played the Ouija board quite regularly. I'd had some pretty uh, scary experiences. And I was much more, I remember like when Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. I was a lot more interested in the transcendence associated with the arrival of extraterrestrials than the transcendence that was offered by spiritism, if that mm. makes any, any sense. And, it does, and it's very encouraging to hear, too. It sounds like you were, you were not getting distracted by the flashy reflection or the distorted reflection of that sense of transcendence, but uh, thanks to God, we're able to trace it back to its original source. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, though, too, Stephen, because you don't think of close encounters of the third kind in a in a religious sense, you know. But I must have seen that thing. I remember when this was back when the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles was a you know the venue to see things at, and I I went and stood in line and and waited. You know, I, I saw close encounters of the third time uh, third kind multiple times. In fact, I even took friends. And it was more of like an evangelistic thing. I wanted them to believe in UFOs, believe that something, that hmm. someone somewhere was greater than us and would come to save us. It really was an evangelistic thing. I wasn't a Christian <laughs> at the time, but it was very much tapping into 
you know, that instinctive sense in all of us that someone bigger, more intelligent, better than us, good, is coming to rescue us or has our best in mind. And we're kind of fumbling around to find out who that is. But uh, it was, you know, Close Encounters was very much a religious experience for me. Well, and I can relate to, you, you know, you mentioned uh, trying out an Ouija board when you were young, and I, I definitely had those experiences as well. And it, it was this hunger in me that, you know, there's got to be something beyond this material world. There's got to be some kind of spiritual reality or power, and maybe we can find a way to access it. Uh, maybe we can find someone that's, like you said, that's looking out for us or that can, um, you know, improve our lives somehow. For, for me, it was a sense of, of feeling very powerless as a kid. And so I, I wanted some way to, to access something that would, would provide me that power, that safety, that security, and just that power over circumstances in, in my life and not have to be the, at the mercy of other things. And so it, it, it's kind of interesting how we, you know, there's, that, like you said, there's that instinct in us that even though we, we live in a very, you know, materially rich time in history and, and culture, a very materialistic, you know, culture it doesn't totally satisfy us that there's mm-hmm. we, we joke and we say, Oh, you know, all, all these uh, people in the world that are animistic or that, you know, make sacrifices to volcanoes or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're just not enlightened. You know, they just don't have science and uh, they, they, you know, they just need some good old internet or something. And, but, you know, we have all those things and we're like, mm, that's, you know, there's something missing here. And so, you know, it's unfortunate, obviously, that we get that we can get dragged into, like you said, the dark side of all of this. But at the same time, I, I think that opens up. What, what did you say? It opens up a portal of your <laughs> and, and you, within your soul to say, you know, that there's got to be a savior to this world. There's got to be a transcendent reality. So that's fascinating, Mike. It you know, what's what's interesting just in hearing you even say that was that the one of the turning points for me becoming a Christian. Because at that stage, I had just completely abandoned the, my Catholic faith, although my Catholic faith hadn't abandoned me. You know, it was still residual in my, in my brain. And, but I had kind of migrated over to Eastern religion. And so it was more of a dualism where there was no true good or evil. There was a yin and yang that balanced each other, but evil didn't have a face. And so, there was uh, the turning point for me was this slow realization that evil was personified evil was real it was a real category it wasn't a concept out there to balance out the good there actually was dark and light and that the darkness was trying to snuff my soul out and the, you know it was just a, the strangest because i remember the book that turned my thinking around was how lindsay's Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. You know, right. I've, mm-hmm. I've went back and reread that, you know, s- since that, and I thought this is kind of a cheesy book. But at the time, I was mortified, guys. I mean, I was just mortified. I could because I realized that evil was w- real, the devil was real, and my soul was valuable enough that he wants to keep me from my Maker. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, I was walking around because I had occult paraphernalia all over my house. I had pornography in the house. I had drugs in my house. And it's like I was walking around on pins and needles. I felt like I was actually in the 
possession of uh, of a spirit and that was part of the thing that was one of the things that caused me to to cry out to Jesus was to free me from the darkness that was very very real so yeah kind of crazy huh you definitely need to read listener the uh, the rest of Mike's story in his memoir which is called a disciple-ish and we should be able to link to that in the show notes. But for anyone who's not familiar with Mike, uh, Mike and I have been friends for quite a while. And if if by any small chance uh, you're cringing a little bit at all this mentions of mysticism and UFOs and all of those things, you know, being described in terms of God used some of that to awaken the desire for salvation, to awaken that need for repentance and that awareness of evil, like, no, that doesn't mean that all of those things, the occult and all that is good. It just means that God can use anything to bring a sinner to himself. And what I've seen in, in Mike is uh, while other people, even in political movements, are being increasingly tempted toward new mutations of this occult witchcraft stuff, like even in political movements now, for Mike, it's more of a been there, done that. And he can play around with that stuff in his fiction. But I have seen Mike literally stand up at an event and gently yet firmly challenge a very popular Christian fiction author who was advocating syncretism and mysticism, like Christianity or pieces of it blended with occult type stuff. And and he was very kind about that, but also very firm on defending the biblical gospel. And Mike, I mean, you can speak to that if you want to, but I also wanted to ask you then about your uh, enjoyment and creation of these uh, paranormal or paranoir uh, stories. Like, how do you understand you know, what they are and uh, what meaning does this genre have for you? I think that the realization, uh, and again, this was something that was growing in me from childhood, but this slow realization that the world is a fantastical place, that there's more than meets the eye going on. I, I mean, I just love that story about Elijah and Elijah's servants when, you know, the enemies surround them. And I'm, I am i don't have the reference at hand, but the enemy surround them and Elijah's servant is, you know, freaking out. And Elijah prays to God to open his eyes and suddenly the hills are surrounded by, you know, the servant's eyes are open and he realizes that the hills are surrounded with flaming chariots that there's angelic hordes around them ready to battle on their behalf and i really get the sense that like for instance the church now needs their eyes open and part of what fantastical fiction does is that i think it opens our eyes to possibilities to realities to imaginations that are are very much biblical and i think Throughout my life, it's been that why I've gravitated towards paranormal or supernatural fiction has been that the church and humans, we are drifting into a kind of materialism that is bondage to the soul. You know, kind of like Zach mentioned how it's like we're on the cusp of technology, but there's no matter what we're offered, we're still ha we still have that sense that there's something more. And I think that something more is that our eyes need to be opened to the very real world around us. That around us now are there are angels, there's demons, there is warfare, and the world is a fantastical place. I mean, we are born into a fantastical world that there's things, there's beauties, there's, uh, there's awe, there's wonder, there's terror in ways we can't possibly fathom. And I just revel in that, Stephen. You know what I mean? I just revel in that fact that 
God has created such a wonderful world that the world has fallen in such a terrible state, but that God is wrestling on our behalf. I feel like if you know we could prick the imagination, the average person to think beyond their now, to have their eyes opened like Elijah's servant, to see what's really going on around them, our lives would be transformed in, in a lot of ways. That's one of my gripes about the church now is I feel like the church has become, we fall into this trap of, of we've become materialistic. We think, you know, God doesn't work anymore in those ways, or that's a metaphor. When Paul says, you know, put on the full armor of God because we wrestle not against flesh. Oh, that's more of a metaphor. We don't have to worry about that. And I think the devil probably couldn't be happier with that kind of thinking, you know, that, oh yeah, the world's materialistic. There's no more devil. What's wrong with you guys, silly Christians, you know? <laughs> and you know what I mean? I don't, and obviously people can go overboard in, in their belief about those things and seeing demons under every rock type of thing. But I think it's an, an awareness that we need to return to and, and fantastical stories do that. But that's really like one of these things that motivates me quite a bit is feeling like you talk about fantasy or fantasy writing or fantasy elements in the church. And too often we get poo-pooed as living in another you're living in a dream state. And it's like, have you read, I'm thinking, have you read the Bible? Have you read that Ezekiel saw a flaming chariot? Have you read like <laughs> the book of, uh, you know, revelations where you've got these beings standing before their throne of God that I'm not sure if they're monsters or if they're angels or what they are. I mean, and you've got these incredible apocalyptic visions. You've got these miracles that would just blow, blow your, you know, your shoes off. And it's like, what Bible are we reading now that we don't live in a in a in a fantastical world? I mean, what Bible are we reading? You know, so that is kind of <laughs> one of one of my gripes, I guess, with the church is we become materialistic. I think Francis Schaeffer actually was, you know, he put it that way too, where the idea is that the the Christian lives in the whole world, and he gave the description of a chair that only sees half of the world. It only you know, you sit in a chair and it only sees half of the world, just the material world. And there's this whole other half of the world. And the Christian is, is called to sit in the chair where we see the whole universe, the spiritual, the angelic, the visible and the invisible, like all the creeds say, like the creeds talk about the invisible and the invisible or the visible and the invisible God. It's like, I don't know. I just wish the church would go back to sitting in that chair where we see the full world and not just the half of the world that we can touch, you know, smell, see, etc. Sorry Amen. for the rant there. <laughs> no, that is what we have you here for. No, not just the rants though, but also what what I what I see here in the in the call to make sure that we do not forsake and in fact study according to scripture that fact of this invisible world, the the fantastical world, the, the spiritual dimension, if you will. The warning there is that if we don't, first, uh, we're going to be missing parts of the gospel. We are going to become more materialistic and we will be susceptible to the culture around us that is just all about materialism and sex and get everything that you can now and, you know, using political causes in order to make yourself into a kind of messiah. The other problem I see, too, is that if if we as Christians do not engage with this part of the Bible, it's going to sneak in one way or another. And what I see happening is, is that if we're not 
teaching one another about this, you know, even in the context of sermons and local church discipleship, or if we're not having fun with, you know, things like, you know, imaginary creatures, like, you know, magicians and uh, monsters and things, you know, like the stories you're writing about. Either way, if we're, we, if we don't have that channel for this, then it's going to sneak in, in, in books and materials and anecdotes that Christians share with one another without discernment. The mysticism is going to get in there and we're going to be starved for that kind of element. And so we won't be able to evaluate it according to God's word, according to the gospel. And as a result, we might be slowly, gradually accepting false teaching. There is the, uh, you want to say counterfeit movements, but there are trends towards spiritual spiritualism now that are quite unusual. You've seen that, for instance, how witchcraft and paganism is really trending now. And so you've got this trend where they call them the nuns, you know, N-O-N-E-S, where they're millennials who are leaving the church. And what the statistics are finding is they're not leaving spirituality. They're migrating to a certain kind of non-traditional spiritualism. And uh, I had recently, uh, you know, a while back heard on the Joe Rogan show, which I listen to sometimes, uh, you know, this trend toward, and there's this hallucinogenic that is called uh, ayahuasca or DMT. I'm not sure, Zach, if you had heard about that, but, and it's yeah. weird. It's, it's almost a, it's like a hallucinogenic, but people are using that hallucinogenic for religious or transcendental purposes. And it's wow. not connected to God. It's not a religious worldview that they're seeking, but there are allegedly spirit beings, ascended masters, that individuals are, you know, seeking out these uh, psychedelic trips and, you know, trying to have transcendental experiences. And this is parallel to what I was going through in the 70s. We were using Timothy Leary's uh, book, the, the translation of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and we were ingesting hallucinogenics and seeking what they called an ego death and, uh, you know, dying to self and, and having these experiences in a lot of bands. Like I remember the Moody Blues, the Moody Blues would sing about these uh, ego, this ego death experience. Remember their song, uh, Timothy Leary's Dead? No he's outside looking in. And so there were these bands that were actually using hallucinogenics for religious purposes. And anyway, all that to say is that our culture is trending towards this kind of new spiritualism. Like you were saying, Stephen, if we don't have a grasp on a biblical worldview or a biblical apologetic, what we're doing is we're seeing people seek spirituality but they're falling straight into the hands of darkness in doing it. You know, it's a scary thing. You know, so Mike, you mentioned Ayaharska. So I, I've only recently become aware of this trend. There's a uh, Twitter personality, Mike Cernovich, that uh, just a political guy, basically. But he, he's on a list of just people I keep tabs on just because they're they're interesting people. But he talks about this in terms of its value for people suffering from PTSD but he, it, it's weird, you know, he, he mostly just makes political commentary, but then he mentions, oh, I, I had this vision from taking Ayaharska about the pandemic or something. And, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's, so it's interesting how on one hand, there's this therapeutic angle he'll, he'll tout. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, this will help us, you know, understand reality better. And, you know, and that's the trend I notice with uh, a lot of people in the UFO community who I, you know, I, I keep tabs on them. Again, they're interesting people and they, I hear this word consciousness come up a lot that, oh, well, you know, aliens are actually 
uh, something more like angels and demons and that they really access us through our consciousness and which is not what I expected to find. The more I just engage with these people, I thought I assumed I would just find people talking about the nuts and bolts of uh, flying saucers or whatever, but they're very much into this. You know, what if these are transdimensional beings, not just physical beings? And then on, on the other end, you've got, you know, Steve Jobs. If you listen to his, his biography by Walter Isaacson, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs experimented with, I guess it was LSD and some other things. And, you know, and, and he touted that in terms of opening his mind, you know, to, to thinking in new ways about technology. And now we have Apple computer, you know, thanks to, <laughs> thanks to all that, I guess. Yeah. And so it's just so fascinating to me. It's like we were talking about earlier. Our, our culture is, is going so far in the materialistic realm, but at the same time, trying to, it keeps trying to do this course correction, whether it's technology, whether it's politics, you know, we, there's this yearning in people for something beyond the physical. And mm-hmm. I, I think in the, in the church, you're right in that if we don't, if we kind of ignore the fact that we live in a spiritual reality with very real spiritual dangers and, and, and it's about a spiritual growth. I mean, we, we are physical beings, but we live, yeah, gotta be careful here. We, we are embodied spirits. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it, we, we can't ignore one or the other. We can't just be all spiritual all the time. We can't just be physical. It's we're both, but I, I see this, you know, like I said, this course correction even happening among believers. And I, Boy, I'm probably going to step on some toes here, but I, I, I think the current uh, fascination with the Enneagram is one example of that, Yeah, which uh, I don't know a whole lot about it. Okay, so I'm probably going to get trashed in the comments here, but to me, the Enneagram looks like a horoscope, mm-hmm. basically. It, it just looks like, yeah, it's this really interesting diagram, you know, that, that looks like almost like a magical symbol. And then if you read about the origins of it, it apparently the guy that was part of creating it tapped into automatic handwriting and, and even had a name of a spirit that he accessed. And so there, there's a very much a mystical origin for it. And I, I think a lot of Christians either don't know that or, or just kind of try to sidestep that. I'm not trying to throw shade on anyone here, but the reality is it is a very spiritualist, you know, creation. And it's, it's fascinating to us as Christians because we, on, on one hand, we do want, you know, the fantastical, but I think a lot of times we we feel like we're not getting that or something. I don't know. Well, with all that said, let's. <laughs> I want to hear more about your Reagan Moon series. So, so tell us about you know what with everything you experienced in uh, coming to faith and then being fascinated with the fantastical. You know, how did you then feed all that into the Reagan Moon series? Just becoming a writer, period, for me was a journey in and of itself. Because I had never, I wasn't one of those guys that I knew from a young age that I was going to be a writer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't know that. And so, in fact, I spent over a decade as a pastor in the ministry. And I hadn't, you know, even then I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself a writer or want to pursue the career of writing. That was all after, you know, our church disbanded and I went through. I use the term crisis of faith lightly, but really had to reevaluate what I was doing with my life, my gifts, and my talents. Reagan Moon and my writing in general, Reagan Moon, the series came after about four other published pieces. I mean, as far as novels or novelettes. 
I'm considered a hybrid author because my first two books were published by a Christian publisher in, in, in the mainstream Christian market. And that was a bit of a mismatch, but I totally am glad I went that route, met a lot of great people, it was published by uh, Charisma House, which was Strang at the time. And uh, it was actually, it was Jeff Gerke who had uh, started their line there, which was Realms. Uh, I don't know if you remember Realms, Stephen, and, and, and uh, you know, Realms Publishing. And they published oh, yeah. just, yeah, they published uh, their uh, speculative line. Go ahead. Though I just think a couple of years ago, I accidentally broke the news to you, I think, about what that imprint had become <laughs> since it was more fantastically oriented. They still publish like Amish fiction, but they don't publish supernatural fiction or paranormal anymore. That's what I've seen anyway. So it's an issue of reader demand, at least in my uh, in my perception, uh, is that uh, there's, it's more Christians are getting their fantastical fix from stories made by you know, secular creators, which can be really mm -hmm. great. Uh, but there's not so much of an emphasis on uh, on uniquely Christian labeled fiction. But uh, Reagan Moon, yeah. Now, what is uh, what led to the creation of that that series in particular? You know, this uh, this skeptical paranormal reporter who suddenly finds out that it's true, all of it. Part of it was my journey in Christian publishing, where I was realizing, you know, that I just wasn't a good fit for the Christian market. And the difficult thing was that I had tons of friends in the Christian market, and I consider myself a Christian writer, although I don't necessarily advertise that on all platforms, nor do I consider like the Reagan Moon series a Christian series. But I definitely wanted to do something that would be a little different. I wanted to test the indie waters, and I wanted to do a book that kind of meshes a little more real-world grit and fantastical elements with, you know, religious iconography, symbolism, ideas, a biblical worldview. And I know that's a tricky uh, tightrope to walk, but that's, you know, Reagan Moon was what I considered this. I wanted to, you know, create this guy that was kind of a, do you remember Kolchek, the old uh, uh, Night Stalker series? Oh, gosh, this was probably back in the 70s sometime. Do you remember that? Uh, any of you guys, Stephen, do you remember the Night no. Stalker series? Anyway, Alas, and, Mike, and, we, so, we are showing our age here, brother. <laughs> or I'm showing mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I wanted to do a character like that that was kind of a skeptical, unbeliever guy that just gets caught up in this incredible plot or this incredible world. And I actually have Reagan Moon in that first book. Uh, you know, they he comes upon or is given these visors, these ancient glasses that allow someone to peer into the invisible world. And it just rocks his world that he actually sees his guardian angel. And it's like, what? You know, and he can't believe it. And uh, so the whole book and really the series is about Reagan Moon breaking out of his cynicism and, and his unbelief. And realizing there is this incredible, fantastical world all around him. And not only that, but he has like got this huge role to play in, in the course of events. And it's kind of a reflection of my sense about not just myself, but of everybody. You know, it goes back to that Elijah quote, you know, and, and Elijah's servant quote, with this idea that if we could just put on glasses, I I wonder that our mm. lives would be completely changed and, and the realization that, you know what, 
God has a plan and a calling and a destiny for people that they just, if we could just see how much God loves us, you guys, and then the resources that he's placed for us to be able to grow and to trust him and to, you know what I'm saying? That's what I feel like Reagan Moon is. Reagan Moon is a is a placeholder for a symbol of how much God has this huge calling for us, probably so much more than we can ever really realize. And, you know, Reagan Moon is arcing towards the his realization of what that is, but that's what that character was for me. I just wanted to be able to write you know, with more grit. So there's language in there. It's probably a PG-13 deal. And there's uh, going to be far out elements. So there, there's ghosts and there's, you know, there's all kinds of crazy elements in there. But there's also a lot of religious and biblical references in the Reagan Moon series. So I'm kind of trying to mesh a whole bunch of things together. But like I said, I don't really consider it a Christian book as much as a series that Christians, some Christians would like, but I really wanted to connect with more general market readers and kind of introduce some, you know, uh, biblical elements into, into their thinking there. Well, that's a perfect setup for my next question, which I really wanted to ask you because you and I, Mike, have gone around on this topic of the Christian label a few times, uh, always amicably to my memory. And Zach may have even a third opinion here, or maybe we can find a common agreement. Because when I hear you say that you are a Christian author, you are pursuing biblically orthodox faith, you want to accept the gospel and and proclaim that. uh, But here uh, in your, your, your fiction, you're trying to reach a general audience where to a lot of readers, the Christian label may seem a bit of a turnoff or a limiting factor, uh, I would come along and say, well, it's still a Christian series, at least with internal classification, because you are the Christian, but you say you don't think it is a, a Christian series or it does have some Christian elements. How, how do you understand that label or, or whether or not it would apply to the Reagan Moon series? Gosh, that's such a big question, Stephen, and you're right. I mean, you and I and a lot of others have just wrestled with that over and over, and I Maybe I need to offer disclaimer here that the opinions are of the guest and not those of Lorehaven or something. But <laughs> oh, just, absolutely! No, that's always assumed <laughs> for sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I don't. I feel like I'm changing. I've been in the. Uh, my opinion has been changing about how Christians should, or how I think I, maybe I should approach my writing or the import of writing or Christian art in the general market. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of in transition between ideas, uh, Stephen, because mm. I don't really have, I, and I've talked to enough Christian authors and know so many great, fine Christian writers and Christian authors. I'm not of the opinion, which is like a common opinion. It's like, oh, Christian writing is inferior to uh, general market writing. And I think at one point I may have being in agreement with that. But do you know what? I just don't think that's the case. I know so many good Christian writers. I don't think we have a dearth of talent or a lack of talent in the Christian market. I, for me, I didn't like the, you know, the guidelines being placed on what is Christian. You know, the Christian is, you know, no profanity. A, a Christian can't have, you know, I had to write a disclaimer in my first book because there is a ghostly apparition figure. Cellophane in. man. I remember that <laughs> disclaimer. Yes. And I, I remember kind of peering behind the veil myself and going, oh, they probably made him put that in there. 
Yeah, it's actually something I'm glad I did, but it was because we had shopped that book. That was my first Christian novel ever published. And my agent had shopped that book round and round. And it's like, Mr. Cellophane was one of the troublesome elements to Christian publishers. You know, they didn't want to have a ghost, didn't believe in ghosts and things like that. So, but anyway, you know, all that to say is that I've seen these transition. I've seen, seen this discussion hammered out among so many Christian authors. And I'm just kind of at the place where I don't, uh, I'm not sure anymore. I'm not, I, I think there should be Amish fiction in Christian fiction should include Amish fiction. I have no problem with more conservative, clean fiction. I really don't. I don't have an issue with that. Right. Uh, what I think I have an issue with is that when we start moving, I guess it's left, <laughs> when you start moving to a more liberal approach to your writing or to your content, that Christians tend to you know, have more issues with that. And so I struggle with that. But then on the other side, I struggle with the Christian writing community and how, at least from my perspective, it appears to be suffering that millennial nunness. <laughs> you know, it seems like mm. we're drifting into this kind of wishy-washy religious beliefs. And I've just been, again, this is, this is Mike speaking, and this is where the disclaimer comes, but this is Mike Durant speaking. But I've been to enough Christian uh, conferences, and it's like I just am, have been somewhat disillusioned with the the theology of some of my Christian brothers and sisters. And I just don't know if we're talking about Christians writing for the general market. The first thing I want to ask is, well, what are they kind of writing? I mean, I found out, you know, the other day that or a couple weeks ago, rather, that there was this Christian author that, um, you know, had come out as, as gay. And it's like, my temptation really again this will probably be controversial for some so zach just forward my the, the hate mail to me <laughs> but uh my first thought was does her publisher know this and should it matter and that, now the thing is there's going to be plenty of christians who are going to say are you saying that christian authors can't be gay and this or that and it's like and i realize guys that that may take this conversation in a whole nother place you don't want it to go which is fine but for me, well, that, I'm that's seeing, the debate of the church right now. It's one of the main topics of debate everywhere right now. So it's not, you know, this is not a fringe topic. It's what a lot of people are talking about. Well, and it overlaps here because uh, the Mike I saw, and this is sort of on the same wavelength, uh, a few, I think it was a few weeks ago, where you had posted kind of, as you said, a, a transitional thought, it would seem, because we'd previously had discussions about you know, whether Christians should try to jump over the idea of the Christian subculture or the Christian label and just make stories for the general market. You know, why are we making these cheesy Christian movies when we could be trying to go to Netflix? And then if we're excellent enough, you know, competing on that higher plateau and, and then, you know, sharing uh, creatively, possibly gospel-influenced stories to more people, you know, being called to greater excellence. But now, you know, it's not just Netflix, but we're looking at uh, some of these uh, speech codes and a lot yeah. of these uh, legalisms that are coming up in in the mainstream culture. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. YA or young adult books and all that. And and this is, you know, we don't want to speak as as writers here. You know, this this is a problem for fans now. Is that all of these supposedly uh, mainstream stories are now being shaped by just the same kinds of little legalistic rules 
maybe well-intentioned, but still legalistic rules that we would have previously associated with Christian fiction. Christian fiction, mm-hmm. you couldn't put you know, bad words in there, but now there's there's speech codes for, mm-hmm. for young adult mm-hmm. fantasy novels and such. So is it really realistic now to expect that Christians can compete on those grounds? Like, hey, maybe we do need a Benedict option after all. I mean, it's, it, that's yeah. kind of the bigger <laughs> issue here. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think the most hilarious thing I saw just re- recently about this was uh, there was a guy that made an apology to a, a mob that got very angry about something. And then in his apology, he used the phrase tone deaf. And then he had to make another apology <laughs> for the apology oh, because gosh. tone yeah. deaf is apparently an offensive term now, which I, I don't, I, well, I don't know that it is. I, I don't but know is it offensive was... to aspiring musicians who can't carry a tune? And that, that is literally what the expression is derived from is someone who cannot follow the rules of music and sing well. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you, you see these like apology snowballs happen all the time now. Do you guys kind of see, maybe you share where I'm at, because when I started writing Christian fiction, the concerns were in one category, and as I've watched over time, the Christian writing, really it's been the writing, publishing community, and then culture, and then the Christian writing community come along, my concerns have kind of changed. And so I feel like I'm in this transition of Thinking, in fact, I wrote this on my Facebook page the other day, maybe it was yesterday, where there was an article about evangelizing. Someone had wrote an article about Christians evangelizing a fandom and how, you know, fandom, there's a lot of misfits, broken people, but typically the conventions are filled with like atheists and hardcore, uh, what does Stephen call it? Sexualityism. Oh, yes. You know? <laughs> you know, so there's all, and, and there's, there's Wiccans, there's uh, alt religious, like crazy. And so how do we, eva- how do Christians evangelize fandom when we've got similar things going on in our own camp? And, and I don't know how to navigate that. I feel like for me, I, my books aren't about theology. And if someone is going to go to my books and try to look for sound theology, they're going to have a hard time finding it. Sure, there's going to be elements where they say, this is legit or this, that. If they want to come to me and listen to me articulate theology or my theology, then that's another story. And that's what I've always felt like. I want my stories to draw people to me. My evangelism Mm -hmm. is not in the stories. I want my stories to have enough of light that people say, what is this dude about? And then they you know what I'm saying? That draws them to me. And that's where we could talk about theology. And, and uh, I just don't know if the church's theology anymore is as rigorous <laughs> that it could go into a con and could, you know, talk to an atheist or could, you know, frankly, there's Christians who are probably have more ideology similar to an atheist now than they do actual Orthodox Christians. I mean, how are we going to minister to atheists when we're just hewing along their same ideological route? It's like, it doesn't, it just doesn't wash anymore. And so anyway, I'm personally at this crossroads of struggle. So. Yeah, I, I definitely feel this with, you know, I've mentioned the UFO community, which, which is a group of people I've, I've really come to enjoy talking to. And, you know, I'm very open with them. This, this whole group of people on Twitter, Hey, I'm a Christian. I want to talk about UFOs, but from a Christian perspective, um, I, I don't hide my beliefs. I don't, you know, try to be subversive or something. But at the same time, 
you know, I do want to try to understand where it is they're coming from, what it is that makes them so interested in this quote unquote fandom. You know, it's not, I guess, a traditional fandom like Steven is in the DC universe fandom, but you know, in, in just the wider science fiction community, I, I definitely know what you're talking about, Mike, is that I want to enter into these worlds, these strange worlds, but with a very Christian purpose. And that, ah, it's such a tough needle to thread is that I, I I don't want to come across like just a Bible thumper, you know, and Mm -hmm. just like, you know, why are you reading Isaac Asimov? You know, doesn't you, don't you know he's an atheist or Carl Sagan, you know, you're, you're going to throw your belief out. But at the same time, this is what people love. To reach people, you have to understand what it is that they love. This is how I've always thought, all the way back to when I first read Acts 17. Paul went into Athens and he understood what it was that people valued. And he he spoke directly to that. That's always the route I've taken in entering different fandoms is I, I want to understand. And so I with UFO Twitter, I'll just ask questions that mm-hmm. kind of try to bridge this gap of spirituality and you know the technology or or you know, talk about how do you make sense of this if you're a Christian, or how do you make sense of this if if you just have a general religious view? Mm-hmm. And I just listen. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I try to understand them, but at the same time, I, I have to have people in my life that are still. You know, I I go to church. Okay, Stephen and I talk all the time about things, and so you, you have to always be getting that input of a Christian worldview. Uh, you, you can't do it alone because, yeah, you you can get kind of wrapped up in things and, and start to be pulled away. But, you know, just in general, as a, I'll, I'll just speak very briefly as a creator, I want to create stories that, so I'm an includer. So I, I want to include people um, more than exclude people when mm-hmm. I write stories. I, I want the stories I write to be enjoyed by a wide variety of people. And look, I, I think if if Christian creators want to create for a very specific audience that is also Christian, that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You, you just have to know who you're creating for. But for me, I want to create stories that anyone can enjoy and at the same time represent a Christian worldview, represent mm-hmm. Christians, uh, Christian characters, you know, fairly and accurately. Um, and even dive into some complex theological topics, but again, not hit you over the head with it, you know, present it in a simple way. And I, I really just, I look at fiction as a way to explore questions I have and, and just kind of experiment with different, you know, it's like a, uh, like a reality simulator or something. I, I'm fascinated by this question. I mentioned this before on our podcast, when it talks about, uh, Jesus returning, says every eye will see him. Well, now mm-hmm. we've got people up on the International Space Station. Elon Musk wants to put people on Mars. So what's going to happen if people are living on the moon, the Mars, or in orbit or somewhere else, and Jesus comes back? Is every eye going to see him? And that is still a wonderful future podcast episode we're <laughs> so going to have. Yeah. So, you know, I, I look at fiction as a way to explore these topics from a Christian point of view, but at the same time, I want you know, I, I just believe in fiction as being something that can unite people and, and draw people into a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to have a, you know, moral of the story that you hit, hit people over the head with. It can just be a, hey, I wonder about this. And and then you you go after it. And, that, and, and, that, and that's the unique thing of fiction compared to nonfiction. In nonfiction, you have to be a lot more concrete. Mm-hmm. You, you have to 
specifically outline what it is you believe. Zach, are you familiar with, or have you have you guys read uh, Holly Ordway's um, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination? It is still on my to be read list. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a few chapters into it uh, oh, because good. of your recommendation. Mike. Oh, cool. Yeah, she uh, she might actually be a good uh, a guest for your guys' podcast. But she mentioned something because she's she was an atheist. And it was through reading the Lord of the Rings and then that, you know, the inklings in that body of work that she ended up becoming a Christian. But she, in uh, that book, she talks about, and I forget the exact terms, it's like a two-tiered salvation or kind of a two-tiered redemptive process. And she talks about how, like with C.S. Lewis, you know, and it was his discussions with uh, Tolkien, obviously, that led him to faith, but Lewis didn't go from an atheist to, you know, a theist, or I mean, to uh, an atheist right. to like an orthodox theist. He he went from atheism to theism, not believing in a biblical God, but just, he went from believing in no God to a God. What kind of God, he wasn't sure, but then he went from theism to to theistic orthodoxy. And so, but she talks about this idea of, in our storytelling, using like this approach of a two-tiered salvation. In other words, the first stage is getting someone from from atheism to theism, from believing in no God to a God, from believing in no moral absolutes to moral absolutes. Then the next stage of our of our quest is to get them to move that towards orthodoxy, to define the parameters of that. And I think that's helpful from a writing for I find it helpful from a writing perspective because I'm definitely a first tier writer. In other words, I'm definitely wanting to take a person from from believing in materialism to supernaturalism. I want to take someone from believing in atheism to theism. I want to take someone from believing in no objective morals to absolute objective morality. Now, some could, and this is I think what you're talking about. Zach, is that some might object and say, well, if they don't find Jesus or if they don't find the true, the one true God, then there's a problem. But the mm-hmm. thing is, you have to get over that first hurdle to get to the second. And so tactically, that's what I'm trying to do with my writing. I'm a first tier <laughs> you know, evangelist in, in, a fi- in a fictional sense. But I've always found that idea helpful from a writing perspective. That is a great way to look at it. I, I think some other uh, Christians uh, familiar with uh, the Lewis Tolkien approach to things would also call that first tier the, the pre-baptism. I think may, I mean, Lewis may have even used that phrase or something like it to describe that transition he made from presumed atheism to belief in a god of some sort, and then and then finally mm-hmm. to belief in Jesus. Uh, some people may be able to jump straight from one to the other. Maybe if they were raised with vestiges of Christian culture. Uh, but others, especially now, like it seems to take a monumental work of something we could only call evangelism just to break the hold of distraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, forget about atheism. It may just be flippant distraction, uh, especially by the idols of popular culture, just to get someone thinking in more uh, in more uh, deeper terms. And I, I really appreciate that. The, the Ragged Moon series like that, that is your purpose as a as a man, uh, Mike. Uh, Zach and I talked in our last episode about. Lewis describing his own creative process as starting with the images and the fun and then adapting those into a form, the fairy tale in the case of Narnia, 
And then finally, Lewis says that then the man in me began to have his turn. That is, he began to see <laughs> the deeper purpose, you know, as a Christian, as a citizen of what, what is this story meant to do? You know, once we get past the initial bubbling of the images and Lewis said, well, I, I began to see that these could help unfreeze the person who had been taught to feel obligated to feel reverence or grief at the sufferings of Christ. And he said, he, he thought that this story could sneak past uh, that reflexive response. Mm-hmm. And I, I see your series also being able uh, to do that. Just, just awaken someone to the very idea of these supernatural, uh, supernatural planes of existence. Do you know what's interesting about that two-tiered idea as well, Stephen, is that it's almost like the first tier going from atheism to theism, let's say, it's kind of marked by a point. There is a point where, okay, I'm there. I got there. But when you go from theism to like more orthodoxy, let's put it that way, where you believe in Jesus and then you begin to understand like the gospel and what grace means and salvation by grace and uh, you know, uh, th- those type of things, that's a little bit more of a process. In other words, um, do you have perfect orthodoxy right now? Is your, is your theology perfect? I know mine isn't, and I'm growing. And I guess we're, when we get to heaven, we're going to stand before God and God's going to say, ah, you got it wrong there. Ah, you were close there. You know, it's like, and it'll be funny. It'll <laughs> be fun to find it like more like Easter eggs, <laughs> not a guilt trip. Yeah, so it's like I I've been accused of like are you like this heresy hunter in in the church? I was like I'm not trying to you know I mean I'm not trying to be a, a heresy hunter. I just believe there is sound doctrine and there's unsound doctrine. Now, amen. How, how each of us arrive at that? I mean, God wants people saved, Stephen. You know what I'm saying? I believe God's love is it's so great we can't even fathom that. And I'm not going to be the person that sits and say, you're not saved. You're not saved. You're not saved. As far as I can understand the scripture, God wants to save as many people as possible. And there's going to be people in heaven that we don't even think it's like, wow, he made it. You know, so she made it. You know what I'm saying? So I just believe the love of God is great, but I also believe God calls the church to resist itching ears and to call out false prophets and to call out unsound doctrine. And and that's what I struggle with is like, I think our move from theism to orthodoxy is a lot more of a process. And it's kind of the process that the Christian writing community is right now in right now is like, how orthodox are we going to be guys? Or are we going to start caving to the world and caving to trends in order to make our writing platform bigger? I don't, for, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I think a big part of that is it just, studying from the scripture what is the point of stories in the first place for what end are we enjoying these fantastical creations or contemporary novels or tv or whatever is it just for the sake of evangelism is it just for the sake of conversations or building bridges uh, or is there a deeper reason to it that reason being you know the, the worship of god ultimately is this a gift that helps us to draw closer to him and understand his world I would ask then, uh, Mike, in terms of your goals as as a creator, uh, what do you think might be coming next for you uh, and or uh, Reagan Moon? Uh, presuming, I haven't read the third Golem yet, but I presume he survives the story. So if we get a book four, uh, any ideas there or what uh, what other nonfiction or other projects you may have in your future? Mm, that's a good question. I'm kind of evaluating that right now. I mean, I have an idea about the arc of uh, Reagan Moon's story, but I also want to write. Uh, some other stuff. You know, I'm working on probably a novella length uh, horror 
type of story right now. So I think I'm going to do something smaller, but I'm also debating about doing a another nonfiction project, not along the lines of Christian horror, which was, you know, one of the nonfiction books I've written, but uh, something else. And I'm just not sure I have so many different ideas. So at this point, I'm kind of in a transition. Uh, the third golem took so much out of me. It was such a long process. I went through so much personally uh, in writing that book. And I kind of felt like the Lord has just been saying, you know, kind of take yourself a good breather and, you know, survey the land from here. But I'm just, I'm not beholden to the idea that I need to keep writing, keep writing this or that. You know, I have this other opportunity on my artwork. Uh, actually, I do a lot of, uh, you know, art, artwork, uh, woodwork and things along that line. And that's been going really good. I've been seeing the Lord blessing that. So I don't, I don't know at this point what, what direction the Lord's taking me. Right in front of me right now is a short story or a novella that I'm going to be working on. Try to get it done by the end of the year, but I'm not sure. So Mike, just to circle back to something you said, I love how you said the world is a fantastical place. We just need to open our eyes to what God has done and what God is doing in the fantasticalness of the physical world and the spiritual world. And I love how in Reagan Moon, you said he puts on these goggles and he gets to actually see what that spiritual world is like. But, you know, there's a verse that came to mind uh, a little later on. Um, it's where Jesus has appeared after the resurrection, and he said, you believe because you've seen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Mm. And, man, I, I think that is that is the challenge for us, is that, that there is a lot that, you know, we we obviously didn't see the events of the Bible unfold. Maybe we will or we won't have supernatural experiences. Uh, I, I got to admit, I, I have a little jealousy of, I, I have some friends that come from the Muslim world that have had dreams where Jesus literally has appeared and talked to them and, and they just these really fantastical ways. And I just think, man, I, I would, I would really love a dream like that. That would be awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you know, the challenge for me is I, I may not see something like that in my life, but Jesus said, hey, you are still blessed if you believe. I feel like that is often the challenge for us. But at the same time, we can see through the scriptures how God is creating a new creation in us, and in, he will eventually come to create a new heavens and new earth. So I think that's kind of where we live right now is we, we live in that, that tension. But uh, thanks for joining us today. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating to to talk about all these topics, any last thoughts for our listeners? You know, I just think God has so much for us, whether you're a writer, uh, you're not a writer. If you're listening to this podcast right now, I just would want to say God has more for you than you've ever realized. I don't want to sound like a faith preacher or, you know, televangelist and saying that, but it's like, I believe God does want to lay hold of our hearts. He wants to fire up the Christian creative community. Uh, I, we've lain dor dormant for way too long, you guys. And I believe God wants our creative energies to just burst forth. I believe there's a world that's hungry for Christians to live the way they're supposed to live. And, uh, you know, so that would be my encouragement is seek God about your role in the world. It might not necessarily be mine or Zach's or Stephen's. It's yours. It's yours uniquely. And, you know, go after God for it, man. Go after God. I appreciate you guys having me on. This has been fun.
Absolutely, Mike. It's been a, a long time coming, and uh, I'm sure we're going to do it again about one theme or other. In the meantime, fans of Paranor, or you want to check out stories about uh, monsters, uh, walking golems, magicians, stuff like that, uh, strictly as a as amazing imaginative exploration, you can find the third golem and other Reagan Moon novels at Amazon, and you can also follow uh, Mike's uh, journey at MikeDuran.com. We'll include those links in the show notes. Maybe you can even find him on Facebook and uh, have a really great conversation, which is almost inevitable if you know Mike. Mike, thank you so much, and uh, we wish you nothing but God's speed in whatever it is that he's leading you to do next creatively. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mike. Our thanks again to Mike for joining us and helping us to put on our glasses and explore not only the real world through fantastical light, uh, but the very idea that there is this hidden dimension and Christians can explore that imaginatively, uh, but always from the perspective of biblical truth. For our fantastic fans segment, guess what? You've less than three Christmas shopping months left. How about that? What in the world has been happening this year that has made it seem to fly by and at the same time grind to a frozen molasses crawl? Nonetheless, as uh, as we release this podcast, it is early October and you have just over two and a half months left to find the best sorts of gifts for your friends and loved ones. Those should include, I hope, the best of fantasy, science fiction, paranormal thrillers, any of those depending on the preferences of the people that you know and love. Well, we here at Lorehaven want to know which kids' books uniquely, whether they're made by Christians or made by anyone else who's just a really good storyteller, uh, which kids' books do you love? Which did you grow up loving? Uh, what are the sorts of books that you're going to be giving to your friends and loved ones this Christmas? Uh, email us at podcast at lorehaven.com or send us a comment via social media. We're hoping to put together an episode that just talks about the best of stories that are appropriate and enjoyed by kids. And we will use any of your feedback for that future episode about the best kids stories. Okay. And we've got a very special stranger than fantastical fiction segment today. Steven, I'm really excited about this because this is like a childhood dream come true. So this is the headline from a Reuters article quote, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No. It's a flying paramedic. Paramedics in England's remote, rugged Lake District region have been testing a jet suit that gets them to people in danger or distress in a fraction of the time it would take to travel by car or on foot. It seems reminiscent of a James Bond movie. Test pilot and suit inventor Richard Browning hovers and moves a few meters above the rough terrain with the help of small jets mounted on his arms and back. End quote. And we will have the link to this full article and a video you can watch that is absolutely amazing. Steven, this guy looks I, pretty much like Iron Man. Okay. He's got this, you know, like on the arms and on the feet and on the back and all these like jets. And uh, he, he goes all the way up this mountain and they, they simulate like someone having fallen off, fallen off a cliff and in, in, uh, in need of emergency medical assistance. And, you know, he gets there in like a minute, whereas it would have taken half an hour or so to hike up there. And so, you know, uh, I'll just say this. It's it's election season to any of you politicians out there. If you promise me a jetpack, I will vote for you. Like I am a single issue voter. Like I just want a jetpack. <laughs> especially want a as jet a, pack. Yeah, especially as traffic gets worse in our town here. And uh, 
you know, I, I, yeah, who, who wouldn't want that? We'll have all those links in our show notes. Plus perhaps even if I get on my game early enough, a link to the Iron Man soundtrack, some of the electric guitar riffs from the first Iron Man movie soundtrack in that movie is really underappreciated, but you have this great little riff and you just need to play that to yourself in the background while you are reading these stories in stranger than fantastical fiction. Well, and what a great way to social distance if you could just fly through the whole sky and go wherever you want. <laughs> so we, uh, yeah, we definitely need the jetpack to uh, to become a real thing. Next on Fantastical Truth, while jetpacks may seem magical, Christians would ordinarily accept those pretty well. It's science, not magic. We understand that. But when it comes to the idea of magic in the real world, we are understandably, rightfully cautious. As we were talking about in our interview with Mike, the occult and mysticism are very real things and very real threats to our spiritual health. But what about in fiction? How should Christians understand fantasy magic in fiction? Should we even read stories that have some kind of a magical or sorcery practice in them? Witchcraft, all of those words, these are very real threats and we want to be mindful of those but I think you'll find that there often are some differences between the occult magic that God forbids in the real world and the fictional folklore magic that is in a lot of the stories that we enjoy. We're going to explore that as best we can on our next episode. Meanwhile, check under your bed and put on those magic dimension peering spectacles because it really is a war out there between good and evil in the spiritual dimension and in the physical world. At the same time, let's not get too afraid of those things that crash in the night because we know the Creator. He keeps us secure in His gospel victory as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>